I'm so amazed, I'm so blown away, uh, to be honest, with uh, some of your comments regarding famous people that you've met. We're going to do a part two on this, 25 past four tomorrow, because they've just been flying through thick and fast, and they are just um, amazing. Here's one, for example. Sitting at Bangkok Airport departure lounge like a balloon that had deflated after a party, after four weeks on Kowtow in Thailand, 94. I see other travellers scramble to bow and oddly curtsy to someone being pushed in a wheelchair. As they approached, I jumped up in case it was someone important. It was Mother Teresa. Wow. 25 past four. Who have you met that's famous or bumped into? To this, it's a story that paints a more horrifying picture with every update. Dozens of migrant workers discovered living in cramped and unsanitary conditions who allegedly paid thousands for promise but ultimately non-existent work in Aotearoa. Currently, 188 accredited employers are being investigated for exploitation and visa breaches. Over the weekend, Immigration Minister Andrew Little met with community leaders who are working with migrants caught up in the accredited employer work visa investigation. With us is Aaron Martin, a principal lawyer at New Zealand Immigration Law. Aaron, good to have you on. Hi, Ralph. Good you, to be here. Yeah, you've been working in this area for more than two decades. Mm. Have you seen anything like this? No, never. Um, but ever since the accredited employer work visa scheme has come into play, um, the level of emails that have been coming into my firm with just general inquiries of, hey, look, I've just been given this job offer. Is this legitimate? Um, hey, I've just been given this visa by my agent overseas, is this legitimate, Uh, has gone through the roof. Um, And it's not in some, in many respects, surprising, Um, but New Zealand's immigration system has unwittingly, without any intention or design, um, become a facilitator of fraud that's occurring in overseas countries. Um, and that's occurred from as a consequence of this uh, new accreditation status system that allows employers to gain accreditation status without even producing a single document to Immigration New Zealand. They just simply need to complete a declaration online that they're profitable, that they um, have been trading uh, for two years. Um, they can go on and get a job check then approved. A job check is basically a permission by the company to recruit overseas. Yeah. And you can ask for, if you've you know got, paid for high volume accreditation status, you can ask for permission to recruit uh, 10 welders. You've got to show your advertising, for example. Um, you then uh, have to make a declaration that you know there was nobody available um, to that came forward for the job in the local labour market. Um, again, there's no evidence required that the company can pay these people. Uh, and then you get that approved and you get tokens to send out to people to go and apply for their work visa. And that work visa then gets processed, again, light touch, um, on the basis that you're qualified. Are you, have you presented qualifications consistent with the job check and what the employer wants? 
clear police clearance, clear medical as an X-ray certificate. Well, gosh, that's this is quite a story. Um, working in this area for more than twenty years, haven't seen anything like it. Mark Knopf Thomas. Mm. Hi, Aaron. So it seems to me, like from a a layman's or layperson's perspective, that Immigration New Zealand is in a bit of a shambles. Uh, And reading the article, the um, Herald article, that, um, you know, fraudulent applications going through, people including pictures of pets and things, and that's getting through a process. Do you think, do you actually think there is an issue within Immigration New Zealand where uh, they've been sort of got to by outside sources? No, I think it's actually, and, and this has been consistent, um, the government likes the revenue that they get through the immigration processes. It's a very healthy revenue, but they have persistently underfunded and under-resourced that organisation mm. and basically been trying asking it to perform miracles. Um, and that, that's not just the current government. It's been every government, I think, mm. since um, I've started working in this area in 1996. Um, and I've got to step back a little bit also in terms of history. There used to be an old accreditation process that employers could go through where they did have to produce documents. They did have to say, here's my financials for the last two years. Here's all my HR policies that govern my practices around HR and my employment relationships, none of that's actually now required. Um, And when this uh, new system got launched, it was in the context or landscape of chronic skill shortage or labour shortage post-pandemic, and they then made it mandatory for every employer who wants to support a work visa to get accredited. Now, you imagine the workflow that suddenly gets slammed into Immigration New Zealand and they just had no ability to be able to do the job thoroughly, again, because they weren't being resourced to do it. Mm. And um, that's that's one of the major problems. Yeah, I've actually worked in central government before, so everything that you're saying makes complete sense. And every time... A politician uses uh, the word, you know, cutting, making cuts to bureaucracy. Uh, It just makes me think of potential situations like this coming up. Um, And, you know, like I I work online. uh, That's a big part of my life. But there is a tendency to sort of default to, oh, well, people can just apply for things online. We'll just have an automated online process and then that will work and clearly it's not. Um, I did wonder and I I don't know if you're the right person to ask about this but where is the support for these basically exploited uh, workers that find themselves um, in this kind of dire situation like what, what now happens to these people? Well, that that becomes part of the tricky question, doesn't it? Because, you know, there's an element of practical issue here that could be easily resolved. If one of these people is, for example, a qualified welder, they've got an accredited employer work visa, provided all the documents that them or their agent supplied was uh, gen- were genuine, um, another accredited employer could say, hey, look, I want that person's skills in my business. Um, I do have a legitimate job for them in an open job check. Um, can I please have their visa conditions changed so they can come and work for my business? So the business community actually has a 
uh, capacity to assist here because if those people do have skills and the documents are presented are genuine, then they can have their visa conditions changed to go and work for another employer. Um, on the issue about, you just mentioned the exploitation, one of the other things that's probably caught, I guess, everyone a little bit by surprise and it hasn't really sort of been talked about much is that when we've used exploitation and when we've geared our immigration rules around this concept of exploitation, we've had a paradigm in mind that the exploitation is this terrible stuff that's happening to somebody in the context of their employment relationship. We didn't ever really give thought to what about what happens if the exploitation actually occurred outside of New Zealand and outside of the employment relationship. Yeah. And in fact, there was no employment relationship, but they then land here in New Zealand. What do we do? And that, to a large degree, is what this is about. It's We're scrambling with this well, new Aaron, issue. This is a really big topic, and hopefully we can return to this. But uh, for now, I appreciate your time on uh, the panel. That is Aaron Martin, Principal Lawyer at uh, New Zealand Immigration Law. He said it's been the worst he has ever seen working in this particular area. It's 14 to 5, the panel. And if you are completely different topic now, but if you are my generation when it comes to digital games, you're talking Space Invaders or the Boxing Game Calculator. But video games, they're very popular with Kiwis. 79% of all New Zealanders play video games, up from 73%. And of all New Zealanders, regardless of age, who play games, 48% are female. New Zealand Plays is the latest in the digital New Zealand research prepared in collaboration with Bond University. Uh, with us is Professor Jeff Brand from Bond University in Australia, who was in New Zealand recently to discuss. Professor Brand, welcome. Thanks very much, Wallace. Is this a surprise? To me, I found that amazing that nearly 80% uh, of the population play video games. Yeah, look, you're not alone, Wallace. I think most people, when they think about video games, think of teenagers and they think of males and they think of antisocial uh, and they think of toys. But that's why we do the research. And in fact, this is the eighth time that we've, we've done one of these studies in New Zealand. Uh, so when you said, you know, we're up to 79% of Kiwis playing. That's up from 73% just two years ago when we last did it. And I guess that's why we do the research, is just to challenge some of those stereotypes that probably belong in the 1980s, to be honest. Well, Moata, um, am I correct in saying that you are a bit of a Minecraft fan? You're incorrect, actually. I used that term when I said that I was a Minecraft mum in the same way that somebody might say they're a golf widow. Um, my, my son is just like hugely, hugely oh. into Minecraft, uh, and I have played it just just to get a sense of what it is. Um, and I built a little house, uh, but I, no. <laughs> so not for you, Mark. Sadly, no. I was actually going to ask, um, what is the definition of a video game? So does that include app-based games on phones? Does it include all of that? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. And, and Mata, what you said, you know, about trying a game to play with, you know, your son, I would argue is a parent playing a video game, even though you're not avid, you have developed some skills around playing. And we, we actually, in the definition, when we ask uh, New Zealanders to tell us whether or not they play video games, we say of any kind, like Words with Friends or Wordle uh, or Sudoku, because when we, when we take, yeah, when we take any kind of game to a digital platform, it's a video game. 
Yeah, that's interesting. What what about the um, gender split? A fairly evenly split here, Jeff. Forty eight percent female. Well, Wallace, yeah, that's what we've observed over time. Um, when we first started the studies uh, back in 2010, it was around 42, 43%. But, you know, going back to, to Mark's question, you know, there's a lot of new game product out there. We're not just talking about those really big consoles anymore. We're talking about mobile phones with mm. lots more content that uh, women and girls would like to play. So are you not tempted at all, Moata, to have um, some sort of online game or a bit of Fortnite or whatever? You just it's, I, not, it's not your not your I, thing. Apart from the Minecraft, I don't I don't have any games on my phone. Um, partly it's because um, in the past, like I've I've played, like I think I played Tomb Raider a little bit, and they're just such a time suck. Like I could see myself just like getting really really into it. And I do not have the spare time for it. Um, so it's kind of like I could go there, but I'd probably go too far into it. So I just don't. Stay there, Jeff, Mark. It's a far cry from the days when I used to have a Commodore VIC-20 typing in code for two hours <laughs> to get a game of Pong on the television screen. Um, so things like educational apps, for example, I am an absolute fan and I'm obsessed with Duolingo. Would that fall into the confines of like an educational game? Yeah, look, absolutely, Mark. And I appreciate, you know, all of the context for what you're saying. Um, Look, games are games. They're fun, uh, first and foremost, but they can definitely be educational. I mean, one one third of Kiwis say they've actually had to do some workplace training, which was in a game-like environment. But but two-thirds would like to have a little bit more fun with that boring task of professional development and safety training. So is there a, what's the wider message here, uh, Dr. Brand, is that um, don't, because there is a lot of focus now on the online activity, whether you're young or you're old or whatever. What's the message here? Yeah, I think that's right, Wallace. The message is that we all have uh, different approaches to media. We watch television, we watch movies, we listen to music, we read books, magazines, newspapers, we listen to the radio, let's hope. Uh, and, and those all require different skills. Uh, and, you know, video games are part of the, the big mix and, and yeah. Kiwis uh, have that capability, especially after the pandemic. We have more literacy, more devices. So uh, we are trying games here and there. And I think that's the big story. And, really- and New Zealand makes them. Yeah, very much so. Nice to have you on, Professor Brand. Welcome, kia ora. That's Jeff Brand from uh, Bond University. I, I just, back to you, uh, Mark, I think that you just said you've got, it's just not your thing. I've tried. Sitting up all night playing a game is not my thing. But, I mean, Duolingo, for example, obsessed. Get it. It's amazing. And I think there's probably plenty of people, actually, who are listening to this now who didn't think they were gamers per se, but maybe they realised that solitaire app on their phone, that's a little little word to my own mum, uh, my mum's a gamer, aged 83. Oh, truly? Is that right? Yeah. Um, can you put me anywhere near Tetris? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not getting anything else done. Um, <laughs> famous people that you've bumped into, we're continuing with that tomorrow. I walked past Marilyn Manson on Bethel's Beach. I went home and said to my kids, I've just seen the weirdest guy on the beach. He was pale, his face was white, and he had black clothes on with black boots, and I'm sure he had makeup on. The kid said, Mum, that's Marilyn Manson. He stood out because it was a very hot day, and he was all in black. Uh, You're on the panel uh, uh, in Z National. Have you been part of a community choir something like this? When I think about you, I touch myself. Oh, I don't.
I don't want anybody else. Yep. And when I think about you... Your local community choir, all right? I want you. I don't think about anybody else. That's Deadlock, by the way, a noir comedy set in Tasmania. And last week, the ABC ran a piece. Lots of Australians reckon that community choirs are daggy. Their words... Here's why they're wrong. Despite our natural inclination, many Kiwis would agree with the first half of that headline. With us to discuss is Kate Bell, director of All Together Now, which uh, is a community choir organisation for in Auckland, one in Taupo. Kia ora, Kate. Kia ora, Wallace. How are you? Oh, it's great to have you on. Um, yeah, the community choir, are they daggy? Um, well, I, I understand that's the image. I don't think so. I think there, um, there's a huge range of experience, um, in community choirs, and there's a huge range of community choirs. Yeah. I don't think ours are daggy. Um, I don't think so. I hope not. <laughs> Well, let's, I, hope, I think they're fun. Let's, I think they're lots of fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not the person to answer because I have never been part of a, a community choir. Um, Moata, what about you? I have not been part of a community choir. I've been part of a school choir and I've been part of um, yeah. Waiata groups. Um, I, I say lean into the daggy thing. You know, like... I'd, nobody counts a librarian because they're worried about looking uncool. So, like, I say just go with it. Be like, yeah, we're daggy and we're Love loving it. it. Um, singing in a group is honestly, it is, it can be almost transcendent. Like, there's, there's a bit where all the harmonies kick in and you're just kind of flying. Um, I just get, I'm getting tingles thinking about it. It is actually really awesome and great for your mental health. Um, so I would encourage anybody oh, who wants to be part of a choir to just Mo- go for it. Moata's really um, uh, singing the praises there, Kate. Yeah, absolutely. Everything she says is true. It's, um, it's very much a team sport, um, singing in a community choir. It's something you can't, you can't do on your own. It's just not the same thing. Mm. You actually need all the other people in the room to be, be doing the activity with you. And that's when that incredible magic happens that she's describing. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. You sound, you, you look, I would love to take a photo of you and put it on social media because you look <laughs> sho- shockingly unconvinced, Mark. No, no, no. I, um, my, my choir days ended actually in Form 2. Uh, I had a brief choir career um, but I, no, I think choirs are I love choirs and I often will listen to a choir actually I'll put it, I'll crank it up on the um, on the old stereo at home um, Kate if like, I am Welsh born and by default I should be able to sing and I can't so I, I've got the worst singing voice in the world what would you say to somebody who can't who feels they can't sing but wants to get involved and join a choir but they're intimidated by it uh, look, I think that's reasonable to feel intimidated by it. I think, you know, there is quite a lot of emotional stuff around singing in our voices, and lots of people have had experiences that make them feel they can't sing. Now, very few people actually can't sing, but singing's a learned skill. It's not, it's not something that um, you know how to do any more than you know how to drive a car just because we've got cars. Um, but there's, there's no reason why you would know how to use your voice correctly and well and confidently. And especially in our culture where there's so many things, you know, you said form two. Well, that would be about the time your voice was breaking and 
that people probably didn't know what to do to help you make that shift to yeah. your new voice. And that's where we lose a lot of men singing, actually. Right. I must admit I'm being a bit unfair about the dag in it because there is, I think, Moata, you really hit the nail on the head when you were you're part of a choir and you get the intonation just perfectly, eh? and you're along with the others and you know it's in tune, on time, and you do fly and you're at one with the choir. I can I can really see that, Moata. Yeah, I mean, I'll do it any time. Like, if I'm at a party, I'm the person chucking harmonies into happy birthday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Just try and stop me. Yeah. Oh, this is this is wonderful. Okay, so for those of us who are thinking, you know what, I'm looking at my sort of um, uh, tech up here, Hamish, who's sort of looking at the l- looking at the ceiling, going, hmm, I might want to have a go. How would I get involved in your local community choir? Um, well, you you have a look online. I mean, we've got a website um, that tells you uh, quite a lot about our philosophy and our approach and the best thing to do is just to get in touch. Um, those of us who do the work um, that I do, we, we're all really passionate about getting people singing and really encouraging people to sing and we understand that people feel anxious yeah. when they come to choir. We, we know that. Um, and so we, we tend to be very supportive and we also we're there to give some skills to build the confidence Oh, uh, lovely, sorry. lovely to have yeah. you here, Kate. Um, and hopefully, uh, the New Zealand community choir scene will flourish after that little chat there. And <laughs> <laughs> a wonderful, wonderful panel, Moata, Mark, Kiorita, both. Thanks for being with me. Thank you. Very, it's very been good. Lovely. Yeah, thank you. I'm Wallace Chapman. See you tomorrow, three forty-five. Elisa Owen and Checkpoint is next.